Welcome to Turning Today, a weekly show warning us about the danger of creeping despotism around the world and here at home, and also in Israel, unfortunately. We'll probably leave this deeply dispiriting topic for another day. We had a lot of fun this week when Russian bombing of Odessa and Ukraine hit the Consulate of People's Republic of China. We are immediately reminded of the mistaken hit of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade when NATO forces intervened into former Yugoslavia. This was back in 1999, and the Chinese communists immediately opened the bottle with jingoistic genie, bussing the students to Beijing to demonstrate vociferously against America. Remember that? It was only 10 years after a somewhat older generation of students erected a statue of democracy on Tiananmen, spooking the communists. They were then crushed under the Chinese copies of Soviet tanks. And the reaction in 1999 for the first time alerted us to the rise of manufactured nationalism and the PRC. Now, following the bombing in Odessa, should we expect a wave of anti-Russian riots in downtown Beijing? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. Anti-Russian nationalism is not considered very kosher by the current regime, even though some 100,000 square kilometers of eternal Chinese land is still under Russian occupation in Manchuria. Meanwhile, the U.S. occupies, to my knowledge, not a sliver of Chinese mainland. Tragically, the Russian criminals also hit and badly damaged the wonderful Transfiguration Cathedral in Odessa. I've been to this church and um, can only attest to its beauty. It's located at the end of a main tourist spot in Odessa, but also surrounded by a charming park where I remember buying some handmade Motanka dolls from Ukrainian babushkas. The second amusing tidbit reached us this week from the Russian TV propaganda, which spent a lot of time on its attacks on NATO, laughing off Ukraine's alleged fiasco in Vilnius at the NATO summit, but also feeding the Russian public with absurd accusations that the only reason why Ukraine was not admitted to NATO was because of Poland's opposition. Oh, sorry, but what? Well, apparently, according to Maria Zakharova, spokesperson of the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, it was Poland that blocked Ukraine's entry into NATO. And why is that? Because, apparently, Warsaw is planning to annex Western Ukraine and has never recognized its eastern borders. And by the way, a similar scare tactics has been recently employed by Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko, who regularly frightens his audiences with the specter of the imminent Polish invasion. Putin himself has gone on this lunatic trail as well, claiming that Poland was planning an invasion of Belarus. And according to Russian dictator, Warsaw is allegedly harboring territorial ambitions in what is now, sadly for Putin, a defunct Soviet Union. Russian ambassador to Warsaw was immediately summoned, but not far behind, Chinese propaganda is already parroting the Putin-Lukashenko line, thus claiming that Poland is preparing an invasion of Belarus. Which brings me to the main topic today. On many occasions, while this show was still a video featuring the one and only Greg Steben, I promised to broach the subject of Belarus, the most pivotal state in Eastern Central Europe. The fate of Belarus may seal the future of Ukraine and heavily affect the future of the Baltic countries as well as Poland, even if Poland does not invade it, as the Russian and Chinese media claim. Even Russia's tomorrow may depend on what happens on that plane that leads straight to Moscow through the so-called Gate of Smolensk, which was crossed only on a 
couple of occasions in history, by the Poles, indeed, in the 17th century, by Napoleon in the 19th century, and by Hitler in the 20th century. So yes, Belarus matters, and its ruler is among the longest ruling strongmen around the world today. Not the longest ruling one, that spot belongs to Cameroon's Paul Bia, who assumed the office the year the Vietnam War ended, while the Sultan of Brunei has been around since the Beatles published Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So Lukashenko is not quite in that league, but getting closer. And unlike the others, he's in Europe. Now, the question of Belarus returned again a month ago after Lukashenko appeared in the news as the alleged mediator during the Prigozhin-Wagner crisis in Russia. Just last week, a Russian general named Andrei Karatapolov stated that Wagner is already in Belarus and is ready to take the Suvalki Passage. This is a narrow, narrow uh, sliver of land that separates Belarus from the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad. Should this really happen through a hybrid operation, NATO would have to formulate an answer. Well, why is that? Well, because what separates Belarus from Kaliningrad is NATO territory belonging to Lithuania and to Poland, where the town of Suvalki is located. Now, Wagner Group is apparently already training with the government troops, and this is only some three miles away from the border with NATO, that is, with Poland. And since it's midsummer, and news are otherwise sparse, outside the natural disasters and wildfires, of course, in the Mediterranean, well, those three miles rise in importance. But let us step back to paint a bit of a context here. Because unlike in the case of Ukraine, which declared independence on several occasions in history and was repeatedly uh, struggling to uh, achieve statehood in the face of Russian or Polish or Austrian opposition, the road of Belarus to independence was almost accidental. As recently as in March of 1991, so a little over 32 years ago, in a referendum, 82.7% of the inhabitants of what used to be the Soviet White Russian Republic voted in favor of maintaining the USSR, so in early 91. Around the same time, south of Belarus and Ukraine, and to its immediate north in the Baltic countries, the drive towards independence of the Russian-dominated vampire state was well advanced, but not in Belarus. But that year, 1991, also reminds us how quickly history can advance. Already on August 25, 1991, the Supreme Council in Belarusian capital Minsk declared independence, and that was only 13 months after his vote in favor of so-called sovereignty within the USSR, which still existed back in 1990. On December 8, 1991, in a town of Viskuli, on the Belarusian side of the forested Bielovieja region, the heads of three republics, Boris Yeltsin from Moscow, Leonid Kravchuk from Kiev, and Stanislav Shushkevich from Minsk, signed the so-called Bielovieja Agreement, or Bielovieja Accords, that effectively dissolved the USSR as we knew it. Now, was there any nationalist pride and joy in the streets of Minsk or Pinsk or Grodno, the towns that prior to the war were respectively majority Belarusian, Jewish, and Polish? Well, not really. Rather, the immediate upshot of that gift of independence were weak institutions, disorientation of the elites, sudden poverty, and major problems with organizational capabilities, which was kind of typical in a, any post-Soviet area where, of course, the concept of modern management was virtually unknown. It took nearly three years before Belarus was awarded a constitution, enshrining a presidential system, but with a parliament. 
many parties emerged, but lack of administrative reform meant that the old Soviet nomenclatura essentially retained the, the reins of power. Internationally, Belarus declared itself to be neutral, whatever that means. Remember that there are only two types of neutrality. First is this wishful thinking neutrality, easily trampled underfoot or under boot, as Germans treated Belgium. Remember that old Wehrmacht song? Die lustigen Stiefel marschieren über Polen oder Belgien. Second type of neutrality is armed neutrality. Um, but that means armed to teeth and perpetually ready, more like Switzerland today, with probably the best mountain army in the world. So good luck invading the Swiss mountains. But the problem is Belarus is flat, flat as a pancake, and its only natural barrier are the swamps of Polesia to the south. This natural barrier separated Belarus historically and also linguistically from Ukraine, even though both nations were hosted within the same state structures for most of their history, first under Kiev Rus, then within the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, then in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and later under Tsarist, Russian, and then Soviet boot. So, you know, when you share over 1,500 kilometers of flat border with aggressive Moscow, your best hope is to be a buffer, not Switzerland. And that's the reality of Belarus. During the 19th century, Russians tried and to a large extent succeeded in Russifying the Belarusian peasantry and its elites, but the history under the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was more complex. The Lithuanian magnates were Polonized Catholics, but spoke Belarusian rather than Lithuanian. Actually, Lithuania, which is a Baltic language, not a Slavic language, and it's related to Latvian today, and it's related also to the old and now extinct Prussian language, Lithuania was only used in the countryside, while the elites in what is now Lithuania spoke either Polish or Belarusian. So the complexity of this Three-way relationship is very well illustrated by the most famous line of Polish poetry from the romantic bard by the name of Adam Mickiewicz. In his great romantic poem, he hails his motherland by opening his masterpiece with a, an exclamation, Lithuania, my fatherland. But then these lines are written in Polish, not in Lithuanian. And he was born in Novogrodek, which is a town in today's Belarus. On a personal note, my uncle was also born in this town in 1931, and he just passed away two weeks ago. He was an eminent historian of the Soviet Revolution. Anyway, back to the 1990s in Belarus. The beginnings of Belarus, independent Belarus, were idealistic, but think about it. Most newly independent nations start out being run by non-professional politicians who just want to shape their countries towards brighter horizons. Think about our founding fathers here in the U.S., or about Gandhi in India or Václav Havel in what used to be Czechoslovakia, or Tadeusz Mazowiecki in Poland. And there are plenty of our examples with Nelson Mandela's rainbow dream, most tragically tarnished today by the venality of African National Congress's elites in South Africa. So for all these people, Mandela is actually the only one I met personally, and I share South Africans' pain and disillusion today. In the case of Belarus, such an idealistic personality, though on a completely different scale, was Stanislaw Shushkevich. He was a head of Belarusian parliament, member of a centrist party, probably similar to German CDU. He was of a mixed Polish-Belarusian descent. His parents were trilingual, spoke Belarusian, Polish, and Russian, and they were philologues. His father was actually banished by Stalin to a camp in Siberia. Now, despite the key role that he played in the dismantling of the USSR, Shushkevich quickly came into a conflict with the nomenclatura, and he understood that Belarus couldn't dream of being more than a buffer between Muscovy 
and his country's fast westernizing neighbors to the west and to the north. By the way, Shushkevich passed away over a year ago in May of 2022, so already after Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine, uh, succumbing to COVID. Uh, he was highly revered in Lithuania and Ukraine and Poland, and each of these frontline countries awarded him with academic distinctions. Now, in Belarus by the mid-1990s, we saw the emergence of a new figure who would then indelibly stamp the nation's psyche for decades to come. Here's a young, energetic farm manager who surfaced from nowhere with a style of populism that predated anyone except maybe Berlusconi, who I think still deserves, now posthumously, the medal for being the first past the post. So, of course, we're talking about Alexander Lukashenko. Uh, back then young, prematurely balding, as most people are, east of the Pug River, forceful tribune, who started out as the chairman of an anti-corruption committee in the Belarusian parliament, accusing the centrists, including Shushkevich, of corruption. Th those accusations were without any merit, but Shushkevich was successfully sidelined. Just like in communist China, manufactured corruption campaigns are the most powerful strategies by which to conduct intra-regime changes. Now, Lukashenko's ambition went further. He promised traditional values, solidarity of the big brother to the East, uh, fighting against corruption, you know, more money for everybody. Good themes, right? And the country's elites were indeed quite weak and corrupt. The economy was in tatters and people needed the dream to believe in. So Lukashenko made a move. On what? First, on national symbols. This is interesting because independent Belarus had until then adopted national colors that were redolent of the nation's common history of Lithuania and Poland. So white, red, white national flag, and a coat of arms with Pagonia, which is a common theme in medieval heraldry, representing a knight on a prancing horse. That is, by the way, also the national symbol of Lithuania today, which, from the territorial viewpoint, was historically almost coterminous with today's Belarus. In many Polish churches, you will find the two symbols together, the Polish white eagle and the Lithuanian slash Belarusian Pagonia or Pogon, the knight on a prancing horse. But since independently minded Belarusians and Lithuanians saw the opportunity in 1941 to regain independence following Hitler's assault on the Soviet Union, and they were using those old national symbols, Lukashenko pulled out a familiar card from the Soviet playbook and accused those national symbols of being Nazi. Familiar? Oh, yes. Now, in the referendum of 1995, Belarus rejected its symbols of sovereignty, and the ancient coat of arms was replaced by what is commonly referred to as Soviet cabbage. It's a mishmash of socio-realist themes from collectivized our culture. Stokes of uh, rye and some flowers and ribbons or whatever else you need on your funeral. So, courtesy Lukashenko, Russian language obtained a status equal to Belarusian language. And the promise of stronger ties to Russian economy reassured the nomenclatura sitting on those post-Soviet assets. And crucially, the president was also given the right to dissolve the parliament, thus doing away with the vaguely French bicephaly that dominated the system until then. Now, Lukashenko continued to rule by referendum in a country that, unlike Switzerland, and a bit like the UK in 2016, had no tradition of educating the populace how to reach major political decisions. So in the next referendum, held already in 1996, the constitution was changed to further strengthen the presidency. The end of 1990s was marked by a wave of mysterious events, including several political murders. Minister of Internal Affairs Yuri Zachenko disappeared, or was disappeared, 
as were other politicians like Viktor Konchar and journalist Dmitry Zavatsky. And to this day, it is suspected that the murders were ordered by General Viktor Shaman, who is under EU and US sanctions, but he's still happily brokering Belarusian lithium deals in Zimbabwe, of all places these days. It's not clear what that wave of physical elimination of the opposition figures was triggered by. Um, what is, however, known is that Lukashenko's ultimate dream was not to rule from Minsk, but from Moscow. And the late 1990s were the times of frantic joking for oppositions, giving Boris Yeltsin's frail health. And the fact that this pig race was eventually won by a short nobody from St. Petersburg was a surprise to many. Lukashenko had to learn how to tolerate Putin and the cooperation with Russia, which he instigated as the cornerstone of his economic policy, suddenly appeared as a severe constraint on his room for maneuver. As Putin tightened the news around his competitors at home, Matlis Khodorkovsky's Yukos and Boris Berezovsky, the Kremlin also turned attention to both Kiev and Minsk. In 2003, Putin tried to tighten the Russian-Belarusian Union, but Lukashenko resisted it, and quite successfully. As much as he's criticized for his appalling human rights record at home, he doesn't often get credit for the way in which he has played Putin a number of times. A great survivor that he is. As Putin insisted in his gangland Russian slang that it's time to separate the flies from the cutlets, Lukashenko indeed welcomed dependence on Russia, but only in the realm of defense. And as much as we in democracies believe that the army will just do the dictator's bidding, we were shown as recently as last month in Moscow that the army's allegiance to dictators has its limits. And again, back in 2003, as in 2023, Lukashenko read the tea leaves better than his opponent in the Kremlin. Now, the alliance with Russia seemed all by sealed, and the claims to neutrality still somehow enshrined in the Belarusian constitution sounded hollow. That striving for neutrality element was finally removed from the constitution last year in 2022 and we can say that belarus is no longer conducting an independent foreign policy today but hey at least lukashenko is still in power how did the west respond to the increased deterioration of the political situation in belarus well not very well and that's because lukashenko yet again proved to be very deft at playing the west each wave of anti-government protests and the subsequent government crackdown were followed by estrangement from the West. But as soon as Putin, obsessed about Russia's periphery, conducted his own special operations, Lukashenko was busy courting attention in Western Europe. Here's how the cycle played out. In 2006, the first serious wave of protests erupted, given that Lukashenko was supposed to step down after eight years in power, and a falsified referendum allowed him to extend his term. Kazulin, who was the name of an opposition figure, was jailed, and a Maidan, kind of Ukrainian-style Maidan, was held and crushed. Lukashenko essentially emerged as the president for life, and the Western capitals reacted to horror. But already two years later, in 2008, Putin offered Lukashenko an opening by invading Georgia and splitting, durably as we know, Abkhazia and South Ossetia regions from Georgia. The West, ever hopeful to drive a wedge between Minsk and Moscow, blinked and offered dialogue to Lukashenko. And Lukashenko obliged. He really feared Russian attack at that time. He even liberated some political prisoners, and the West was elated. Finally, returned to normalcy. A year later, Eastern Partnership was hailed by the EU, and Lukashenko even met with Pope Benedict. Now, on that, Belarus, unlike Lithuania, is not majority Catholic. But Catholicism is still the second largest denomination in the country, so the Vatican likes playing a smoothing role with the 
archdiocese in Minsk. Now, Vatican's diplomats are very astute, and much of their work is behind closed doors, but the track record of dictators is not that great, beyond gaining some concessions in humanitarian sphere. Only two years later, in 2010, protests erupted after another rigged election in Belarus. Democracy was described by the official propaganda as an orgy of chaos, morally suspect, for a population that desired order above all. Repression was really harsh and Lukashenko survived it, but the relations with the West deteriorated again. But who else but Vladimir Putin wrote to the rescue again by invading Crimea in 2014? Yet again, Lukashenko became Salon's face. Even more, he's now Salon's Putzent, polishing his saloons to host Merkel, Poroshenko, Putin and the hapless François Hollande in a vain effort to proceed with Minsk process in which Moscow pretended not to be a party to the conflict in Donbass. Hey, it's only the pro-Russian separatists, right? With their green uniforms and civilian airplane downing ballistic missiles that you can buy at every shop. Russia? What Russia? Look, no hands, no hands. Anyway, Lukashenko clearly loved the process and the EU thought that they needed him. He scored a tactical victory here and sanctions on Belarus were dropped. But in 2020, an economic recession caused by high oil prices and the COVID pandemic that Lukashenko dismissed with arguments that were even more ridiculous than the most infamous statements by the then US president. Well, in that year, protests erupted again, following another rigged election, and I'm losing count here which one it was, and several opposition figures, Sergei Tikhanovsky, Babarika, Tsepkal, they were all jailed. Many demonstrators were tortured, like in 2010, and by all accounts, Tikhanovsky's wife won the election and Lukashenko got no more than maybe 40% of the vote. But the regime used a mix of direct repression and spreading fears of Russian intervention, with arguments similar to those used by the Jaruzelski regime in 1980s Poland. The crackdown was brutal, probably worse than what Putin dished out on the Russian opposition in 2011. It was almost as bad as what Putin's crony Yanukovych attempted in Kiev in 2014. Unfortunately for Belarus, the street demonstrations were limited to about 300,000 people. There was a relative lack of leadership and the strikes in state-owned enterprises didn't last. The repression apparatus did not switch sides and Lukashenko appeared on TV with a Kalashnikov and the battle was won yet again. So this was the pattern. A crackdown in 2006, a pro-Western twist in 2008, another crackdown in 2010, another attempt to be respected by the West after 2014, another crackdown in 2020. Isn't pattern spotting fun? Since the events of 2020, however, the legitimacy of the regime has been in tatters, and Lukashenko began to behave more like a regular rogue. He kidnapped a plane flying from Greece to Lithuania to jail an opposition journalist who was on board, and he organized and financed a flood of Middle Eastern migrants whom he delivered to physically push against the EU border. These actions actually failed to separate Warsaw from Brussels. In fact, it helped the two sides to find some common ground after years of wrangling about the institutional decrepitude in Warsaw. Uh, since then, both Lithuania and Poland have strengthened the physical barriers on the border. So, yes, we can. Just Trump couldn't, somehow. But in 2022, Lukashenko threw his weight behind Putin, and the question was whether he may have lost his touch this time, or simply maybe felt cornered with no chance to snake his way back into the Western saloons. It's the, the opposition figure, Tikhanovskaya, who remains in exile and who is considered the rightful representative of Minsk for the West, for the European Union, for sure. The result is that 
at least until Prigozhin's mutiny in Russia, Lukashenko was at the receiving end of Moscow's demands. He implicitly threatened Kiev with a northern front, given that some 20,000 Russian troops are stationed in Belarus. Minsk reinstated capital punishment for what it calls terrorism, and that definition includes anti-government demonstrations. But what is Lukashenko's future? What if he does not die in the next couple of years? What if he wins, in quotation marks, another election in 2025? What if he's replaced by a Russian figurehead keen to realize Putin's plan to reincorporate Belarus into Russia? And what if Putinism collapses in Russia, but Lukashenko survives? And under what conditions? Kim Jong-un's? Qaddafi's? Mugabe's? Before COVID, I traveled around Kazakhstan with several young analysts from Moscow and asked them about the mood in Russia regarding a potential Anschluss of Belarus. They all agreed that, unlike in the case of Crimea fever of 2014, there's little likelihood of the Russian populace to rally around Putin or whomever who would bring Belarus back to motherhood. Why is that? Well, because most Russians consider Belarus already Russian. Now, this could be a naive view. Lukashenko has learned to hedge his bets, most visibly in Beijing. You may remember his recent high-profile state visit to meet with Xi Jinping with all the razzmatazz of Chinese diplomacy conducted as a circus. But the Chinese-Belarusian industrial cooperation is real. The language of territorial integrity that Beijing adopts, while a lip service for all China's mishandled neighbors, starting with Japan and the Philippines, for Taiwan and Bhutan, Mongolia and India, that language suits Lukashenko as a quasi-insurance against Moscow's territorial ambitions leading through the gate of Smolensk to the west. China even opened a logistical center close to Minsk, but the war and the anti-Russian sanctions have trimmed that particular branch of the Belt and Road Initiative, not to mention the closed border between Belarus and the EU now. Now, Belarus is connected by many flights to Beijing, and it's relatively easy for Belarusians to find a job in Beijing, not least as pro-regime white monkeys, I presume. It remains to be seen what role Belarus will continue to play in the Ukrainian conflict. Kiev's position vis-à-vis -vis the situation in Belarus is actually quite confounding. Unlike the EU, or Warsaw, or Vilnius, Zelensky and his government do not maintain open channels with the exiled leader Tikhanovsky and her team. Instead, Kiev has kept its diplomatic service active in Minsk, as a carrot to Lukashenko. And Kiev also wields a big stick the volunteer Kalinovsky battalion on the front line, manned by anti-regime Belarusians. The battalion is named after a Belarusian national hero, Konstantin Kalinovsky. He was a Polish-Belarusian writer who was one of the leaders of the Polish-Lithuanian anti-Moscow uprising in 1868, the so-called January Uprising, which was squashed by Russia and which dispelled with any hope for a return to an independent Polish-Lithuanian statehood or a more democratic rule in that part of the world. Kalinovsky was only 26 when he was executed by Russians in Vilnius, and his name returns often in Belarusian memory as a symbol of the country's unfulfilled dreams of full sovereignty. Now, these days, many of us know some wonderful people from Ukraine. Belarus is a much smaller country, so for those who do not know many or any Belarusians personally, let me bring two anecdotes. Several years ago, a Taiwanese filmmaker threw a party in New York's East Village, near the strip that is often referred to as Little Tokyo. The party was a sprawling affair, hosted in an old apartment, with artifacts ranging from sagging bookshelves to a full concert piano hanging upright from the ceiling. There's this word in German, Klimpern, 
in French pianoté. Uh, both verbs describe an embarrassingly hapless attempt to generate melody on piano keys just for fun. And I, I found myself doing precisely that, sharing the pleasure with two youthful Belarusians. Not just youthful, uh, this young couple was visually attractive too. <laughs> the girl used to be an anchor in the anti-Lukashenko TV station called Belsat, which broadcasts to Belarus from Warsaw. And her boyfriend was a geologist, a graduate from Krakow's AGH, which is Academy of Mining and Steelmaking, one of the ever-thinning number of mining schools that are still active in the West, if we can call Krakow the West. What was this couple doing in New York? Now, guess what? They both gave up their plushy, cushy jobs in Poland, that is EU, and followed their dream all the way to New York City. Now, to settle here? Nah, leave it to Albanians, Greeks, or Pakistanis. No, their dream wouldn't stop in East Village. The entrepreneurial couple was on their track to Patagonia, of all places. Now, how will you finance this, I asked. Well, we just work some odd jobs. Now, what kind of jobs? The TV anchor played concert violin, so she could earn small change as a street musician. And her geologist boyfriend happened to have two golden hands and would refurbish houses and apartments. Next stop, Texas. Why Texas? Well, we have to brush up on our Spanish before heading further south. So that's the type of youthful energy that you lost, Mr. Lukashenko. And here's a second one. A friend of mine, who since the 1980s has been my mentor when it comes to avant-garde music, his family roots are in what is now Belarus. Several years ago, I was on my way to Botswana and we met briefly at an avant-garde festival in southern France. He told me that he finally had had a chance to visit the village of his grandparents, who were evicted by the Soviets in the 1940s. He found the village in Belarus, which miraculously was not burned down to ashes by the Nazis, and in that village he found the house of his grandparents. It was abandoned, not inhabited, never inhabited, stood empty. He managed to walk into his grandparents' living room. Now, sagging under seven decades of dust but kept clean of flies through generations upon generations of spiderwebs, there was a table. Porcelain plates were laid out on the table. Forks and knives were placed alongside. His grandparents didn't have much time to flee. They left everything behind. But for their Belarusian neighbors, the abandoned house always belonged to those who were chased away. For over 70 years, nobody looted it. Nobody stole anything. All the artifacts were left there as they were back in the 1940s. So sometimes, just sometimes, Eastern Europe amazes us. That's all for today. Have a great week.